You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 and 8 that Bianca read uh, for us. Uh, As you're turning there, if you're new, uh, welcome to Citizens Church. My name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And just to stay there for just a few moments, uh, I know that this is a time of year that brings a lot of new faces to a church. And uh, maybe that's because you are uh, at the beginning of the new year uh, trying out church for the first time, or maybe it's the first time uh, in a long time. Maybe you're just making a church change and that's brought you here. Maybe you're new to the area and uh, you're looking for a church home. Uh, and if that's you, uh, what you probably are wondering is what kind of church is this? Uh, what does this church believe? Uh, what are these people like? And I just, we can't spend a lot of time, but I do wanna give a few moments to, to answering uh, that question before we turn our attention to Ecclesiastes 7. Um, Psalm 27 says, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, to gaze in the house of the Lord forever or to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And because of a truth like that, we at Citizens are the kind of church that believes the great need for the human heart is to know and be known by a glorious, beautiful God. First uh, Peter 1 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Because of truths like that, We at Citizens are the kind of church that preaches and teaches the Bible as the very word of God. It's his words that our hearts and and, and souls most need to hear. Revelation 7 describes the church, the heavenly congregation, as being made up of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And because of truths like that, we at Citizens are the kind of church that longs to be a diverse people. Uh, that we would be uh, diverse generationally, both young and old, that we would be diverse ethnically, all kinds of colors, because we believe a gathering of saints that don't look the same on the outside, but have a shared love for Jesus on the inside, that represents something about a beautiful God who made all people in his image. Ephesians 2, no, Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're the kind of church that's filled with sinful people, broken people, people who are, who are deeply flawed. We've sinned like everyone else. And, and sometimes we can do what people do and we try to pretend like we're better than we are. But what we know in honesty is that we are deeply flawed and in need of grace. And Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love made us alive together in Christ, even though we were dead in sin. So we are the kind of church that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ that God sent his own son who lived and died in our place, who rose in victory over sin and death and made a way for people like me, like me, and people like you to be made right with God. So we're the kind of church that believes that we're loved by God in Christ, just as we are. And he doesn't stop there. Jude 24 says he can keep us from falling. He can present us one day holy and blameless before God. So we're the kind of church that believes that Jesus is changing us to look more like him. And, and that's why we're here this morning. That's not why we've gathered this morning. Not because we are a people who go to church, but because we are a people who believe that we can become like Christ. And that's the great aim of life, by God's grace, because he first loved us and we love him. And then finally, Colossians 1 says that Jesus holds all things together. 
He's sovereign over every moment, in charge of all things. And he is sovereign over the fact that you are where you are right now. And so we are the kind of church that's really glad you're here. Whoever you are, whatever your story is, wherever you're coming from, you being here is one of the many moments that Jesus holds together as he holds all things together. And so we're honored that you're with us. Welcome to Citizens Church. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're back in our wisdom series. We started uh, almost a year ago, and uh, was that a laugh? Okay, that's fair. We started almost a year ago. Uh, We broke for Advent. We're jumping back into our wisdom series this morning, and uh, our definition for wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. That's what wisdom is. Uh, And some big truths that we've learned from God's word is that wisdom has a posture. It's low. Uh, We grow wise as we are humble and, and grateful. Wisdom has a pace, it's slow, we grow wise over time, it doesn't happen in a moment. Uh, And then wisdom is a person, it's Jesus, we grow wise in relationship with him. And we are uh, back in a book that we've been in uh, before, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, we'll be in verses 1 and 8 of chapter 7. The first 13 verses of chapter 7, what we need to know about that, is they're answering a question that's asked at the end of chapter 6. It'll take us a minute to get there, but I want to read verse 12 of chapter 6 just to frame where we're going. It says this, for who knows what is good for mankind while he lives the few days of his heavy life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell mankind what will be after him under the sun? Uh, The numbers change every year, but most years about 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. Um, and it, it depends kind of on based on the circumstances of the year that came before. Like there were a lot of New Year's resolutions a- after 2020, and so that kind of peaked. But they kind of hang around 40%. So almost half of the country makes a New Year's resolution. And they're, you know, health goals and career goals and religious goals or self-improvement goals. And, and the idea is that it's a new year. And so something about me is going to be different this year than it was last year. A new year, new me. Because the year is changing, something about me is going to change. And so about 40% 40 of people do that. Do you know how many stick of the 40%? What percent sticks with the resolution? Okay, that's... Somebody studied harder than I did. Um, (laughs) In February, about 20% of people have kept it up. What I read was by the end of the year, only 9% have stayed with their resolution. So that means about 91% don't stick with it. And some of you hear that and you're like, yeah, that's me. And then others of you, uh, you're like, no, I'm, I'm the 9%. And if that's you, God bless you. We all want to be more like you. Okay. Um, but I have a question about all that. Why do we do that? Like, um, what is it about the turn of the year that makes us want to resolve anything? that makes us want to be better, something about the the turn of the year that makes us want to change. Because there's nothing like magical that happens between December 31st and January 1st. There's nothing substantively that changes. But what I think is happening is that we are giving our attention around the time of the year, around the turn of the year, we're giving our collective attention to something that makes us consider how we're living. Uh, Our attention is on something that makes us consider making changes. And what it is that our collective attention is on is the passing of time. Like one year is behind me, and that means there's less years in front of me, right? 
And so all the cliches come out. We're, all, we're always surprised by it. You know, it's already 2023. It feels like it just started 2022. And so where did the time go? And the days are long and the years are short. And what's happening is a reality around this time of year, a reality that we can so easily distract ourselves from and like the normal hustle of life, it forces our way, it forces its way into our thoughts as the calendar turns and a new year begins. And here's that reality that, that's forcing its way into our thoughts. We get this one life, just the one. And as time moves on, there's less of that life in front of me and there's more of that life behind me. And whether we think about it in these terms or not, like what, what we're facing is the fact and the truth that life is short. Um, we're mortal. We don't live forever. Everybody dies. And watching a, a year go by and another year come, it gets our attention to that. Because for most of us, when we think about those things, if we do, when we think about the passing of time and, and the, the brevity of life, it's sobering. And it makes us ask, well, what needs to change? How do I need to, to live well in the time that I get? Um, I turned 35 last summer. And around that time, thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't feel woo about it, but I'm glad that you do. Uh, around that time I turned 35, I was talking to one of my children, and they said, Dad, you know, 35 is a really big birthday. And I said, really? I didn't, I didn't know that. And they said, yeah, you know, um, it means like half of your life is over. And I said, uh, go to your room, right? <laughs> You're grounded. You can't come to my birthday party, right? Um, but in the moment, truly, that's a sobering thought, the thought that I've already lived half my life. Now, look, I have no idea if it's true or not. I don't know my future. I'm not promised tomorrow. Maybe I live to 100 and preach here another 50 years, which we would all love, right? But even at the thought that half my life's behind me, I've only got half left. I'm in my head. How am I living? What have I wasted? Um, what do I want this latter half to look like? What changes do I need to make? Okay, why are we talking about this? Uh, because one of the wisdom books in the Bible that we've been in before, that we're going to be in again this morning, it turns our attention to this very subject over and over and over again. The book of Ecclesiastes is what we've called wisdom's disruptive book, just because it doesn't read like most books of the Bible do. It's really stark. It's really confrontational. But one of the things it does is it turns our attention over and again to the passing of time and turns our attention over and again to the brevity of life. It turns our attention to our mortality as, as human beings. And that comes in the book in the form of an accusation that we hear over and over and over again in the book. Uh, the author, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, it accuses life of being hevel. And hevel is a Hebrew word that just means smoke or vapor or something like that. And, and the book takes the idea of smoke. So like um, if you think about the last time you blew out a candle and you blow out the candle and for just a moment, for just a few seconds, there's smoke that kind of billows and kind of releases in the air and it just lingers above the candle for just a bit and then it's gone. And the book of Ecclesiastes has us conjure up an image like that, like a little bit of smoke above a candle, and then it's gone, and it says, that's life. Life is like that. Life is heavy. It's short. It's blindingly brief. Like smoke, it's there, and then it's gone. Uh, life is, is confusing. It's hard to grasp, kind of like smoke. You can't get a hold of it. And 38 times in 12 chapters, it makes that argument in one way or another. It says things like a generation comes and a generation goes, just like that. 
says things like, you know, no one, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of future things yet to be. It's just gone. Life, you are short. In, in this book, if you've read it, you know this, it makes some of the most uh, disruptive, harsh claims about human mortality that you'll find in any literature, much less the Bible. And it, at times, truly, it's kind of a bummer to read, but it's a wisdom book. And we've asked before, we'll ask again, what wisdom is there in thinking those kinds of thoughts? Life is short, and here's what the wise do. The wise don't ignore the reality of life's brevity. The wise are changed by it. I came across a, a quote from a theologian. I don't know a lot about him, but, but I found this quote helpful. His name's Christian Wyman. He's a poet and a professor at Yale Divinity School. And this quote kind of summarizes a foolish way that we can respond to things like that. Um, he says this, life is short, we say, in one way or another. But in truth, because we cannot imagine our own death until it is thrust upon us, we live in a land where only other people die. Or to state it another way, we live in a land where life is short for everyone else except for me. And so we have these moments of considering the passing of time and the brevity of life, but those are fleeting moments. Those are like this time of year kind of moments. And then we hurry back to living in a world where we believe we have all the time in the world and we believe we live in a land where only other people live short lives. And maybe that's why we're so bad at keeping resolutions because we're so good at ignoring our mortality. And that's foolish to think like that, according to the Bible. Um, the wise agree with the psalmist in Psalm 90, 12. It's a really common verse. You've probably heard it. It says this, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. I've never seen that before, God. I've heard that verse. I did not catch this until this week the connection between living a life of numbered days and developing wisdom in your heart. According to the Bible, essential to living well is living as someone whose days are numbered. As the wise say this, the wise say, I am among those living a short life. So my friend, you are among those living a short life. And in the, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't care whether that's short compared to like what we would say is short, whether you live, you know, 22 years or 82 years. In the grand scheme of things, life is just, it's helpful. It's like smoke above a candle. And wisdom comes from knowing that and thinking about that. Um, I know these are heavy thoughts, friends. Just want to acknowledge that. Uh, Carrie, my wife, asked me a couple days ago, where are we going on Sunday? And what she means by that is, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, well, we're back in the wisdom series. And she's like, are we still in that? I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. But I said, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And um, it's, it's really wisdom and mortality. It's like, um, you know, how to live wisely in light of death. And she raised her eyebrows and she goes, oh, well, happy new year. And it's like, <laughs> I get it. These, these are heavy thoughts, truly. Um, and and there's, there's a way that what could happen in our hearts is there's like a, a kind of a, a morbid fixation on mortality. And I don't think that's what the Bible is encouraging. But here's what's true. We can ignore these things. We can ignore these truths, but we can't escape them. We can't. 
And according to God's word, the wise don't ignore, they lean in and they're changed by the fact that this life is brief. And the good news is Ecclesiastes 7, which comes after chapter 6, verse 12, it explains what that life looks like. It offers a picture of that life and puts words to it. So chapter 6 ends by asking what is good for humanity while they live this heavy life, while they live this short life, while they live this smoke above a candle life. What does it look like to live well in this brief life? Chapter 7 answers it. Uh, Seven times... If you read verses 1 through 13, you'll see that it repeats a phrase, better than. Uh, The idea is, in this brief life, it's better to live this way than to live this way. And it's going to repeat that. There are things that the wise value and pay attention to in the brief life. And I just want to consider two connected verses in this chapter, verse 1 and verse 8. And if I put it into a sentence, it would be this. In a brief life, because life is short, in a brief life, the wise care about dying with a good name. That's verse 1 and living with a patient spirit, that's verse eight. In a brief life, the wise care about dying with a good name and living with a patient spirit. We'll unpack both and then see how it's only possible with Jesus. Look at verse one. I'll read it slow. A good name is better than, it's our first better than statement, precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. So you've got two stanzas and kind of two things that are being held up, good name and precious ointment, and then over here, day of death and the day of birth. You might remember we looked at this verse back in August, um, so some of this will be repeat, but it's all worth revisiting. Um, Precious oil was a resource of the rich or the precious ointment. And uh, to give you an idea, kind of the full scope of this wisdom, Proverbs 22.1 says almost the exact same thing with a different turn, a good name is more desirable than great riches. So the precious ointment of Ecclesiastes 7.1 is the great riches of Proverbs 22.1. And the idea is it's your stuff. It's your things. It's what you own. It's what's in your account. It's the clothes you wear. It's the house you have, the the stuff of wealth and, and status. That's the precious ointment. That's the great riches. A good name is someone's reputation. Reputation doesn't do it justice. Um, Name in our culture doesn't mean the same thing that name meant back then. Someone's name in this culture was just the very core of who they are. If you wanted to talk about the depth of a person, the real substance of the person, you talked about their name. And so having a good name is equal to living a good life, flourishing in life. And so when you take them together, a good name is better than precious oil. One way to understand what it's saying is this. Who you are, hear me, who you are is more important than what you have, which means that what you have is not the best indicator of how well you're living. And that's a hard pill to swallow in our part of the world because our part of the world gives a disproportionate value to what we own. We believe our possessions say more about us than they actually do. Like we give our stuff more defining power over our lives than what it has. We are eating dinner a couple months ago, our family uh, eating dinner at Legacy West, and um, we were waiting to cross the street. And as we're waiting, this super nice, clean, beautiful, Maserati drives right in front of us. And as it drives in front of us, it, it, it uh, does that thing that everybody loves and they rev their engine real loud. Just thank you. It's a gift to the world. Um, <laughs> but my son, as that car passed, he goes, wow, 
he must be really rich. And I was like, yeah, or really in debt, but one of the two, right? You know what he didn't say when the car drove by? He didn't say, wow, he must be a loving person. He might be. Who knows? But the car can't tell you that, right? The car doesn't say those kinds of things about people. The car drives by, and he, he says, he must be really rich. He doesn't say, man, he must be really kind to his mom, <laughs> you know? He must um, be really charitable to people who disagree with him. Why? The car can't tell you that about him. Our stuff can't say those things about us. Possessions can't speak to who someone is. They, they only can say what we have and maybe give us insight into how we've managed money or something like that. I don't know. But what matters most, according to the proverb, is who you are. So your job and your accounts and your house and your clothes and your vacations, they are, they say very little. They are very poor indicators of how well you and I are living life. They don't give me a good name. You know that? Um, this verse is saying something that we need to hear, friend. If you have to choose in this really brief life, if you have to choose between the two, choose a good name. Proverbs 28.6 says, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. In other words, it's better to be the man who dies with his integrity in hand, even if it's the only thing he has. Who you are, is more important than what you have. A good name is better than precious ointment. And then the next half of the verse drives it home in a way that I think is really important to pay attention to, guys. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That's a hard thought. It's kind of a confusing thought. What does it mean? Uh, Zach Eswine, he's a pastor. He wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he has a comment on this verse that helps us understand how these two lines fit together. It's really concise. He says this, birth is like precious ointment. That's the connection between the two stanzas. Sweet-smelling, wonderful in itself, and holding out the promise for rejuvenation. But precious ointment doesn't reveal character. Just as an evil person can use precious ointment, so one's birth does not indicate the kind of person one is and will become. Death reveals the life that preceded it. It's the obituary, not the birth announcement, that best reveals the measure of a person. So there's a couple conversations that I will have around here because I'm a pastor. Uh, one of them is, I, you know, I talked a few weeks ago to some church members who have a newborn, and I ask uh, questions that I typically ask in that conversation. You know, what's her name? Uh, who do most people say that she looks like? And then I ask, you know, does she sleep through the night? And uh, the dad goes, yeah, I mean, yeah. And the mom says, no, <laughs> she does not sleep through the night. Where have you been? Um, and so that conversation is precious. It's sweet. It's exciting. It's full of potential and full of gratitude and full of fatigue. And I have that conversation a lot. Um, in the past few years, I have a different conversation, and it's a conversation that you have when someone's passed away. Someone's died, and, and you're planning a funeral to remember their life, and the conversation's all about, I'm telling you, friends, it's all about what they were like, who they were. And, 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 you know, we talk about hobbies and talk about stuff and their favorite things and all that. But what really comes to the surface as having the most weight is who they were as a friend and who they were as a brother or sister or who they were as a mom or dad or who they were as a son or daughter. And, 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 and the best eulogies in those moments 
include words that are aimed right at the very name of a person, the very character of the person. And so the best ones sound like this. You know, they were joyful. They were patient. They were understanding. They were uh, hard to offend. They were easy to interrupt. They were gentle. No one loved me like they did. And those two conversations, friends, they mark every single life in the room. Conversations around birth and conversations around death. The birth conversation's happier. It's the one that I'd rather have. But according to this verse, if we could lean in, it's the conversation around death that reveals the quality of life lived. It's the obituary, not the birth announcement, that best reveals the measure of a person. And my friend, this is another heavy thought, but it's a thought that the wise have. You and I, all of us in the room, we are past the birth conversations about our life. Those have been had about you. I'm sure you were adorable, and I hope you were doted on, but those conversations are in the past. But one day, your obituary will be written. And that day is the day that reveals the life that you've lived, according to Ecclesiastes 7.1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. And so how do we live well in a brief life, a heffal life, a smoke above a candle life? The wise care about dying with a good name, we give thought to that. Not a morbid fixation on mortality, but giving thought to what it looks like to live well. And so the wise are going to agree with the wisdom here and say, more than I want to fill my life with things, I want to live a life that matters. I want to die with a good name. Here's what I'm assuming. And I don't think it's a stretch. I'm assuming that we all want that to some degree. I just don't know of anyone in the room who would raise their hand and say, you know what, I, I would love a terrible eulogy and an empty funeral. No, I think in this moment, wisdom captures the heart. Wisdom starts to at least stir us towards asking certain kinds of questions. And if any part of you cares about this, we have to go to verse 8 and see something that's really important. Look with me at verse 8. The wise in a brief life care about dying with a good name. And then verse 8 says this, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So we've moved seven verses into the chapter. It's, it's continuing this better than theme. But verse 8 is going to pick up the topic that we just saw in verse 1. So the end of a thing and the beginning of a thing is a reference to the beginning of life and the end of life, just like in verse 1. And then listen to this line. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What does that mean? What does that have to do with living well in a, in a, in a brief life? Um, there's a kind of spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit is um, the way to talk about someone's inner life, like, you know, the very depth of who they are. And so they're saying there's a kind of inner life that leads to a good name, and then there's a kind of inner life that doesn't. Do you hear the two options, the two inner lives? God alliterated it for us. There's the patient spirit, and there's the proud spirit. And which one lives well in a short life? The patient. The patient spirit lives well in the brief life. The proud spirit lives foolishly in a brief life. Um, I think it comes out a couple of different ways. I think it's important to name them. Uh, the proud life can, on one hand, be uh, like what C.S. Lewis called the unexamined life, meaning uh, it's a life that never stops in a short life to consider how I'm living. So. Uh, if you hear a verse like a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death is better than the day of birth, and if I hear that and I'm unbothered, unmoved, uh, I'm not in any way provoked 
to think certain thoughts or ask certain questions. Like if I hear that and there's no thought to maybe things in me need to change, there's no pausing to consider the quality of life I'm living. If that's my reaction to wisdom like that, then I have a proud spirit. Because what it reveals is it reveals a spirit that says I'm fine just as I am. And typically how that comes out of a proud heart is we start thinking about all the other people we know who really need to change. And those thoughts are always directed at others but never directed at ourselves. Proverbs has already taught us about the fool. The fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. So the fool has nothing to learn, only a lot of things to teach. And Proverbs says if you correct a fool, he will hate you because they believe they have no need for correction. And so when the proud spirit is invited by wisdom to be changed by the thought of a brief life and leaving a good name, and instead of being changed, there's, they're just unmoved, uh, so just rigidly settled in a prideful way of being that even the thought of mortality can't shake them out of that pride, can't lower them to wisdom's posture. That's one side. There's more to it, though. Something that's interesting, if I'd asked you, hey, what's the opposite of pride? You'd probably say something like humility. Uh, What's the opposite of pride? You'd probably say something like um, selflessness. But here, what's juxtaposed with pride? Patience. The opposite of being proud in a short life is being patient. And patience is about staying with something. It's about long-suffering. It's about faithfulness. So the proud in spirit, whatever that means, they are those who do the opposite of that. They are those who, uh, instead of living through this short life with patience, they live at a different kind of pace. They live at a proud pace. And, And so I think this maybe might hit more of us. It definitely hit me. Goodness. We hear the wisdom. Life is short. And a good name matters. But then instead of being patient to live in light of that, we just move on. So there's a kind of proud in spirit that's thinking these thoughts because God's word has us thinking them right now. But at two o'clock today, maybe tomorrow at some point, there's a desire that wisdom has. It's calling out to us to get us to think about our life and consider our life and maybe even make some changes that accord with, with the truth of living a brief life. Um, And there's a kind of pride that says, I don't need that. But then there's a kind of pride that thinks about it, but only thinks about it right now before we go out and just start living again. Like, uh, there's a kind of pride that, that, that moves on throughout the day and we just get busy and we fill our lives and our calendars with things that help us uh, ignore, things that help us numb, or just good things that are not best things. And it helps us believe that we live in a land where only other people live short lives. And I don't think, friends, it's necessarily leaving and doing a bunch of terrible things or leaving and committing a bunch of heinous sin, but it's jumping back into a pace of life that makes little time for things of most importance. One of my favorite authors is Corey Ten Boom. She has this great little line where she says, if the devil can't make us bad, he will make us busy. Because busy most often amounts to what? Negligence of things that are most important. Dallas Willard, he's another favorite author of mine. He puts words to this side of the prideful spirit. He says this, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, to want a good name, to want to live well, to have a vision for what it means to, to, to be proud of the life that we've lived. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, 
but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. And so for many of us, our hearts warm to the idea of living well in a short life, and our soul aches for that. But the threat is not just the pride that says, I'm fine, I'm doing great, I already have the best name there is. It's the pride that says, I can put off the kinds of things that bring change in my life because I don't have time right now, which is to say, I'll have time for that later, which is to say, I don't think life is as short as it actually is. The patient spirit doesn't fall into either of those traps. The patient spirit doesn't believe that we're perfect. You, you, you hear God's word even now, and, and, and maybe in your heart you're like, you know, I need to have this conversation with, a, with an accountability partner later. I need to have this conversation with Christian community later. The patient spirit hears who you are is more important than what you have and, and wonders, kind of takes an audit of life of where my energy's going and, and where my resources are going and does my life align with wisdom and truth. The patient spirit wonders, do I have a good name? And what does it look like to live well? And then the patient spirit moves through life at a patient pace, meaning I can take all of these truths and I can point to the way that I've decided to orient my life around God, who's most important, around the loved ones that God's put in my life, and orienting my life around the kinds of things that bring change to the heart, that actually shape a person. And that's the kind of pace that leads to a well-lived life. So there you have it. Uh, life is short. You should care about who you're becoming. Don't be proud. Don't rush through life. Don't neglect these things. Be patient. Slow down for what matters. Can I tell you something? If we ended there, this would have fallen woefully short of what God has for us. We would have just been reminded of our mortality. Awesome. Maybe at best we would resolve to make some changes, and maybe at the best of the best we would have tried to be more humble. But would you hear me? Goodness, if you missed everything, hear this. It's just not possible without Jesus. A good name? Come on. I know me. I'm not good enough on my own to be the kind of person I hope to be. I know my thoughts. I know where my heart is bent towards pride and towards lust and towards control and towards selflessness and God-forgetting and self-indulging. A patient spirit? I don't know how to do that. For this to matter to you, love, for this to matter to anyone, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes has to drive us to the gospel of Jesus. Hear the good news then. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of Jesus, the good name that we most need is not earned, but it is gifted to us from him who died in our place. So that as a sinful man who has no shot at an honorable eulogy on my own. What I get as one who is covered in Christ is the name that I don't deserve, but the one that by his grace he declares over me. Son, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, washed white as snow, guilt erased, shame lifted, beloved child. That's who I am, Christian. That's who you are. And that grace declares identity over us now and changes us. It changes us. You know the most important thing you can do in response to the wisdom of a short life? 
Believe the gospel of Jesus. You are loved. And out of that love that God has so lavishly poured into my heart and into your heart, we let that love and that grace shape us that we might become who we were always meant to be. And friends, I would be remiss to leave this out. In believing the gospel, believe that you are named among those who have eternal kingdom life on the other side of this short one. In John 11, Jesus comforts a grieving Martha And he says this to her, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because of the death-defeating resurrection of King Jesus, we can hold two truths together, my friend. Life is short, and those who belong to Jesus live forever. And if I could bring this to a close in just a simple truth, it would be this. Life is too short to live without Jesus. We need him We need him to make us who we were meant to be. We need him to to give us a life and a hope that is unthreatened by death and, and a meaning that is unthreatened by suffering. And we need him that we might live wisely both now and forever. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy in our lives. Yeah, God... What's unknown to me about the people in this room, their stories, their thoughts, their fears, how they're responding, what's unknown to me is so clear to you. I mean, because of that clarity, God, you can um, work through a broken messenger and apply your beautiful message in accordance with the needs of your sons and daughters. And I ask that you would do that, holy God. That that we, God, would be a people that are held righteously and faithfully and confidently by wise thoughts about mortality and the passing of time on one side and held by an eternal king and a God who gives grace and someone who is patient with us as he waits for us to live patiently in this life. Would you just hold us together in those two truths? And and somewhere in holding us together in those two truths, you're, you're making us wise and faithful and loving and changing us and forging in us an imperfect but a beautiful eulogy that we're living out and holding for us an incorruptible inheritance when our king returns and reunites heaven and earth and everything sad is made untrue. We want to be faithful. We love you. Let me pray. Amen.